The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and it's nice to be back. Really appreciative of all the teachers who covered for me these last four weeks. And I thought this summer it might be nice to take some weeks and look at, um, there's a very well-known Burmese teacher these days, Saida Utejaniya. Saida just means teacher, uh, used for monks, senior monks mostly. And um, Tejaniya is his name. And he's been coming to the States now off and on for the last 12 years. And uh, he's an interesting, unusual monk in that he uh, ordained many times and then disrobed. It's actually not a, considered a bad thing when you ordain as a nun or a monk, even if it's just for a month. It's sort of considered to be good, even if you have to or want to you know, stop being a monastic after a few months or a few years. And so uh, at some point after going back and forth, being a monk, disrobing. He got married, I think had a couple kids, or at least one child, and then took up robes again. So he's currently a monk. I hope his family's okay with that. (laughs) But he's a very powerful teacher, and uh, he's made a real impact on the Western Vipassana insight meditation scene. And a number of us have been able to practice with him when he's come to the States. Some people here at the center have gone to... Burma to practice with him as well. And he has a very simple, not easy, but a very simple approach to the practice. And it really revolves around understanding that in any moment of experience, any moment of our life, there's something that's being known. There's always an object of experience. Could be a sight, could be a sound, could be a touch, smell, a taste, could be a thought. And it's, if we're not lost in thought, it can be known. Because the awareness, that's what it does. That's the work of awareness. And that work happens naturally. Like if you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, do you personally have to make effort to hear? We don't. Hearing just happens. So what we're doing, what he uh, invites us to do, and this is really central to the way the Buddha taught, is to be reflectively aware that experience in these six ways are being known. And that's just a basic training. Oh, seeing is being known. Hearing is being known. Now, it can seem a little frantic if you think you have to know every experience, every object of experience, but you don't. You just need to recognize that knowing is happening in an ongoing way. Whether you formally are working with a meditation anchor like mindfulness of breathing, and there are many other sort of meditation anchors that you can use, or you're doing a more open awareness style of meditation practice where you might know in one moment that seeing is being known. And then in the next moment, it may be hearing is being known. Hearing, hearing. It's just this hearing being known. And then there may be, oh yeah, sensation, aching, aching, just this experience of aching being known. 
And then you notice you don't like the aching knee. Oh, not liking is being known. That mental attitude of not liking, what we call aversion. Oh, it's just aversion. Hating, not liking, being known. And then you notice you're judging yourself for hating your knee pain. Oh, judgment is being known. Judging is being known. Just that activity of mind being known in the present moment. And then if you have some doubt about the practice, this is stupid, what am I doing? Oh, that, that's just doubt being known. So it's not about controlling experience. Because, of course, the whole point of the Buddhist teachings is to resolve the issue of suffering. And from his own study of his mind, he understood that the cause of suffering is a mind not understanding things as they are. So the system the Buddha set up and shared with others is, well, we need to train the mind or cultivate, develop the mind so that it's stable, the awareness is stable, continuous enough so that it can uproot the habit of misunderstanding or misperceiving. So this is what we call samadhi. This is why we return to the present moment We sustain awareness, this present moment awareness. We're developing this. It's kind of like a power when when awareness gets some momentum. We get some momentum in our mindfulness. It becomes the mind. You feel it. It becomes quite stable. It actually feels uh, like the awareness becomes solid, unshakable. It doesn't mean that the mind's controlling. It's just the opposite. The mind, because understanding doesn't happen by controlling experience. Understanding arises when the mind is stable in awareness and experiences are coming and going naturally because the mind isn't operating with greed and with aversion, with delusion, misperception. It's in this simple, clear, non-judging sort of expression of mind and in that expression, then, as experiences of the mind and body are coming and going, the mind develops a new understanding of that activity of mind and body. But when I'm constantly, when my mind is constantly involved in controlling my experience, trying to get a more comfortable experience, or an experience that I'm more familiar with, or the kind of mind states that I like, or body states that I like, always manipulating, controlling, not wanting to feel, not wanting to know or see that. When we're in our normal state, we don't, our understanding doesn't get transformed. We're too busy struggling, controlling, denying our experience to see it clearly. So, when we would practice initially in our sit, at the beginning of our sit, and, and generally more at the beginning of our meditation career, we put more emphasis on stabilizing the awareness. So we can't go directly to transforming our understanding because we need this tool of stability of awareness. So even when you sit down, even if you're able to sort of, you've done a lot of study. Um, and you've had some powerful meditation experiences, it's still good when we first sit down to do what we can to stabilize the awareness. So to be more um, dependent or more 
sort of willing to use a meditation anchor like mindfulness of breathing or whole body awareness or body scan. There are many useful techniques. Even reflecting on loving kindness can be a powerful, stabilizing activity for the mind where you train the mind to rest in that friendly attitude of loving kindness. This is a practice we do the first Friday of the month. Maybe some of you noticed that on the schedule. It's a drop-in. Like, like this Sunday night uh, practice group, we have a monthly practice group that, that's devoted to teaching the meditation of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy, equanimity, these four qualities of love. Because it's a stabilizing, that attitude of loving kindness so that's your meditation object, loving kindness, right? And you hold that in mind in the same way that you hold the activity of the breath in mind or the activity of sensation of body in mind. And you're training the mind to have a continuity of present moment awareness with loving kindness, with whole body awareness, with the uh, sensations of the breath, body scan, uh, continuity of present moment awareness build that power of mind that we call samadhi, that balance, stability of mind. And with enough of that momentum then, you'll have moments where the awareness will be really strong. Right? There'll be this beautiful balance of like persistence. You're not complacent. You're not lazy. But you're not over-striving. You're not trying to make something happen. So there's balance in terms of effort. There's balance in terms of confidence, like you really have some sense of this, po- this practice being powerful, but you're not sort of caught in guessing or wanting something to happen, predicting what's going to happen, excited about what can happen. So there's this, these, all these balances that sort of come online. And as I mentioned earlier, it's experienced as a kind of solidity, like, this is a trustworthy mind, or this is a trustworthy heart. This is a heart that can see things as they are. And it often feels like we're in new territory because we're so often in a state of distractedness, some kind of struggle, some kind of wanting to disappear or be in denial or just be lost in thought because we just, the mind doesn't trust doesn't have a sense of the power, the wholesomeness of that experience of samadhi. And in that experience of samadhi, then the mind can really let experience of the mind and body just do its thing. Just let everything happen on its own. Thoughts come and go. Sounds come and go. Sights, sensations come and go. Everything just comes and goes. But the awareness, in a sense, doesn't move. In a way, in a more subtle way, awareness arises to meet each object of experience. But there's a sense of the trustworthiness of the awareness, of resting in the awareness, trusting the awareness. And what does awareness observe or know? It, it, it knows that things come and go. Things come and go in a way that's ungovernable, not reliable. Thoughts, are they reliable? Sensations, are they reliable? Sounds, no. Things come and go, thoughts, activities of the body, they come and go lawfully, but we're not in control. 
of things coming and going in the mind, emotions, sounds, sights. And the more that awareness, that stable awareness we call samadhi, the more it can rest in that experience, seeing experience come and go, see the naturalness of that coming and going, the ungovernableness. That ungovernableness, it's not a judgment to say that experience is unreliable or ungovernable. It's just a statement of fact that arises when we observe things as they are. Just the buzz of life, right? Sometimes you get that experience out in nature, you know, when you're just sitting in a comfortable way next to a lake or in a meadow, and you just drop in, open up to that buzz of the fluttering of the leaves because of the wind, the glittering of the sunlight, the sound of the insects. And there's just an intuitive, wise sense of everything happening on its own. And on the one hand, it's very uh, a very enlivening, liberating experience. But uh, on another hand, it's, it's a sense of nobody being in control. So it's, it's both initially both um, a little disconcerting and a real sense of it being liberating at the same time. And you can have the same, it's a little bit more challenging just you know, at a family reunion and just the buzz of people talking and activities of people doing this and that. It's just that our mind more likely gets attached to the images of relatives than to the fluttering of leaves or the buzz of the insects or the other things that would be known. But the more and more the mind can rest in that experience of samadhi, which means one of the effects of samadhi is awareness is leaving experience alone. So it's intimate precisely because it's not controlling, it's not judging the experiences that are being known. And you see, that's why it's so stable, because it doesn't have an agenda with the objects of experience, experience that are coming and going. That's what lends it its stability. And because experiences, the objects of experience, the activity of the mind and body coming and going, expressing its nature to come and go, its lawful nature to come and go due to causes and conditions, then the mind understands how impersonal the activity of mind and body. Not just the fluttering of the leaves because of the wind is impersonal, but even our own thought. Oh, that's so beautiful. Like if that were to arise, samadhi, that stable awareness, would see that that thought, the naturalness and the impersonal nature of that thought was no different than the fluttering of the leaves or the sound of the wind or the this or the that that's being known. It's just another conditioned activity of mind or body following causes and conditions. And even the thought that it's personal, this is the most beautiful moment of my life, like to have that thought. I am so glad I decided to take the walk today. Like even a very seemingly personal thought, but from this place of balance, of samadhi, that thought is seen just as a, well, of course, the mind thinks a thought like that sometimes. It's seen as a natural and impersonal arising, something that comes and goes due to innumerable causes and conditions, not personal, not to be rejected, 
not to be attached. And then also one of the most powerful things that arises from this place of samadhi right, is seeing that whenever the mind loses that place of stability, of just letting experience express its nature to come and go, mental experience, physical experience happening, whenever the mind begins to deviate from that place of balance and starts to get involved, attached, reactive with an object of experience, a sight, a sound, a thought, then from that place of balance, the mind notices that the identification or attachment is stressful. It doesn't matter what object the mind is getting attached to, having an opinion about, a fixed a fixed opinion about, doesn't matter what the object is, if there's a fixed opinion, an attachment, controlling, liking or disliking, then the wisdom in the mind, the stability of the mind, immediately recognizes that's unsatisfactory, that's stressful. That's dukkha is the word we use in Buddhism. Dukkha is this fundamentally unsatisfactory nature of anything the mind clings to, takes personally. Now, we can kind of get it intellectually, just hearing it now, and many of you have thought about this, studied this for many years. We get it that attachment hurts, right? Don't we kind of, that's a basic understanding. We've had enough experiences, but yet, if we really got it, would we keep getting attached? and identified with experience. So in this very subtle way, from this place, this place of samadhi, this balanced, stable awareness, observing experiences of the mind and body coming and going, then we, what gets teased out through just observing, being intimate with things as they are, what gets teased out is the habit of grasping, the habit of identifying the habit of taking things personally. Because the mind sees in a very immediate, direct way that it isn't, doesn't work, doesn't help, that it doesn't make sense. I mean, we all have had some little moments, maybe some of you bigger moments, where we were in a more liberated space for a few seconds and we weren't trying to control something. You know, I think sometimes people do things like water slides or skiing or making love or whatever it might be, you know, that is an engaging activity. And, you know, if there's enough safety in the activity, you can really relax, really let go. But it's so engaging, you can't be distracted, right? And you can, you can get these little moments that sometimes people talk about as flow. Right? Athletes, artists can touch these places, enter these places from time to time. Normal, ordinary, non-artists and non-athletes can <laughs> touch these places from time to time, or we just bump into them. We, it doesn't mean we understand it. So what we're doing in the practice is we're realizing that these places aren't some little mystical experience to have a few times in our life. It's a place to visit many moments of every day, not as an end in itself, but as a place of training the mind. Like we're training the mind that this radical degree of letting go is not only possible, 
but this is the place to live. We want to live in this place of non-attachment, not theoretically appreciate the value of non-attachment, but to actually move through a moment without grasping. I mean, there's, I had this interesting conversation with my wife, Wynne Fricke, the co-founder of Common Ground and one of our teachers here. Recently, we were on retreat uh, for a number of weeks, and uh, after the retreat, we were talking about practice and uh, it just reflecting on the experience of freedom that arises in practice, and especially if you've been practicing, the more we practice, of course, the more the mind experiences, has moments of this experience, as I've been describing, of non-attachment. And one of the things we were talking about, uh, Ajahn Chah, this great uh, Thai meditation master, he's dead now, died in the 90s, um, he liked to talk about this space of nibbana, nirvana, as the reality of non-grasping. I actually, one of my favorite definitions of this experience of awakening, of liberation, as the opening to the reality of non-grasping. But because we can understand that conceptually, because we know what grasping is, attachment is, so conceptually, we, can, we get a sense of what non-attachment, non-grasping would be. But it doesn't mean we know the reality of non-grasping, like to really live in that space where the sort of cognitive mechanisms aren't holding to anything, like any conception of, of even like me or mine. And my, one of my main teachers, Joseph Goldstein, likes to talk about it as uh, you know, jumping out of an airplane. And he, the way he tells the story is like, initially you're quite exhilarated, like this is fun, this is wild, right? And then you realize you don't have a parachute. This is not wild, this is not good. <laughs> you know, and you freak out, panic, freak, 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 until you realize there's no ground. Now then what's your experience when you realize there's no ground? And this is a little bit like getting used to the experience of non-grasping. But we can only realize that experience from this place of mindful awareness. Otherwise, it's just, a, it's just this elusive thing that we sort of bumped into, an experience that arose and then disappeared. And we might think, was there something in the water I drank? Or, <laughs> you know, or maybe this is just a special holy spot you know, and I experienced some freedom or, you know, that was just a really great lovemaking session or a really great basketball game, you know, and I, because we don't understand what just happened. But from that place of mindful awareness, we were getting close, because of the stability of awareness, we're getting closer and closer to that space where the awareness is stable enough that it just lets the activity of the mind and body be. And then it loses it, and it starts to get attached, and then it lets go. So, so much of our practice, when we have a little samadhi, like we're having a quote-unquote good sit, things have settled down, the mind is somewhat stable, stable in the sense of more continuity of present moment awareness, right? And we, 
And then in that place of relative samadhi, good set, where there's this play happening between getting a little attached, noticing that it's stressful, it's heavy, the heart, the mind gets burdened with its attachments, the letting go of that, feeling directly the release, noticing directly how things are opening up, lightening up, how right that feels, and then losing it, and then releasing, contracting, releasing, contracting, releasing. That mind, that heart, is learning a lot about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. That's called a good sit. doesn't mean it's pleasant even. It just means the mind is learning a lot about the reality of attachment and the reality of non-attachment. The reality of grasping and controlling and fearing and wanting and the reality of not wanting, not fearing, not grasping, not struggling, not controlling. But you see, we can, if we're always in the world of controlling, we'll never learn about controlling and the release and controlling. Right? We're too caught in it. And it's like when we're sitting, we can spend a lot of time finding the perfect posture. We can spend the whole 30 minutes, whole hour, you know, however long you're sitting, or trying to stop thinking, or any of the other number of ways we can waste our time meditating, where it looks like we're meditating because we're sitting still, relatively speaking. You know, we look right in our sit, whatever that looks like to you, you know. We've, we're sincere in the sense of wanting to do the practice, but what we're really doing is we're struggling to get somewhere. Instead of learning to relax in with awareness that lets things come and go, lets things happen, the body and mind happen. Now, ultimately, when you have a lot of, when the mind has a lot of confidence and a lot of skill, you don't, you can shift into that space anytime, any place. You don't need to be in a formal meditation time, right? And in fact, some of you, I know many of you, have had these moments just out in your daily life where the mind just, and the confidence of trusting the awareness and the mind for moments at a time was just in that space of open awareness, things being known. And then you could see, like, maybe because of the energy that arises in those moments, some attachment, like, oh, this is great. Right? And then you feel the contraction because now the mind is identified with the lightness or the energy or even joy, and then the mind loses it. And then the mind maybe starts to judge itself for losing it. And then it really gets tight. So you can go from heaven to hell in a few seconds. right? And interestingly, and I know many of you have had this experience too, you can go from, heaven, uh, from hell to heaven too, where you're in a really contracted state, really struggling, really angry with yourself or angry with somebody else or really caught up in lust of wanting something to happen in your life. And then in a moment, wisdom arises and it realizes, oh honey, this isn't helping, right? It's like the mind sees the insanity of grasping, struggling in the way that it's grasping and struggling, and it just drops it like a hot pan, like, oh, honey. And then you can go from being in hell in that struggle to just the mind opening, the heart opening with compassion, with letting go, with trust. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm not 
going to neurotically struggle. You know, I'm not going to obsessively... I, I don't know much, but I know doing that doesn't help. So I'm going to let go. It's not even you have that thought, but that's the, that's the interpretation seconds afterward, right? The letting go just happens because the mind saw the insanity of grasping. And that can happen in any moment where we go from, he- from hell to heaven. All it takes is wisdom, the momentum of wisdom to arise in that moment and to see the insanity. Remember, it's not a cognitive activity where you're thinking, oh, I shouldn't be so caught. It's really a direct seeing. The mind, the wisdom in the mind sees the grasping and in the same way that you don't have to think. When you're touching a hot pan, you don't have to think, you know, I think it's burning my hand. The letting go happens. And it's the same way when the wisdom sees the mind struggling to control, to get rid of, to get. When the mind sees that clearly without judgment, letting go happens. And it's all these little and big moments of seeing the causes of suffering, the causes for release, that wisdom grows in the mind. Little, little, little bits, but many, many of those little bits add up. And then after 35 years or five years or a couple years of practice, we begin to notice that we're not the same person we used to be because the mind understands grasping is not the way to happiness. Grasping is the way to hell. Any kind of grasping, even grasping the most wholesome thing like enlightenment or universal unconditional love, which seems like a good thing, But grasping it is the cause for suffering. Actually, being able to express universal love is great, right? If we can love unconditionally, that would be great. But wanting to become the person who loves unconditionally, that's stressful. Getting curious about the causes of becoming a more generous, loving, patient, fearless, clear-minded person That's not unskillful, right? Getting interested in the causes. I think I shared before I left on my retreat to teach and to then my own personal retreat, practice retreat. I shared, I think in in April maybe, uh, this discourse from the Buddha where he, the Buddha uses a simile of the hen, you know, chicken raising eggs. And he gives the example like, well, imagine a mother hen lays some eggs and then stands to the side looking at the eggs and go, I really want these chicks to hatch. I mean, I really, really want these chicks to hatch. And the Buddha says, but will the chicks hatch? No. Why not? Because that hen doesn't understand the causes for chicks to hatch, right? That the mother hen has to sit on the eggs. So the desire for the chicks to hatch is not the cause for the chicks to hatch. And if the mother hen sits on the eggs but has no desire for the chicks to hatch, they're going to hatch anyway. Why? Because the causes for the hatching are there, you know, staying warm. When the eggs stay warm, they're going to hatch. You know, fertile eggs will hatch if they're kept at the right temperature for the right length of time. So it's the same thing that we begin to understand the causes for happiness, the causes for unhappiness. We learn directly. 
And the Buddha says, as we learn, we become independent. We're not dependent on teachers or teachings as much because we've studied our own heart, our own mind, systematically enough that whatever good teachings we might have got from the Buddha, we now have confirmed them from observing our own mind. Oh yeah, I guess he was right. These are the causes for happiness. Letting go, seeing clearly. These are the causes for happiness. Oh, attachment, aversion, craving. These are the causes for stress, taking things personally. This is the cause for stress. From my heart, this heart being burdened. Oh, yeah, just like the Buddha said. But now it's, we're independent. Now, even if the Buddha said that wasn't true, but we saw it directly in our experience in a clear way, then we'd have confidence in our own experience. So there's always this transition, and the Buddha made a big deal about self-reliance. Because it doesn't matter that our teachers before us have had some positive effects from the practice. They're, the benefits they've received from doing the practice don't really help us. They can't sort of transmit their freedom, their fearlessness to us. But they can show us the way. Right? They can say, well, as I look back on my own practice, this is is how I distill the causes for what allowed the heart to let go. This is what I can distill as the cause for suffering, the causes for suffering. You know, check it out. Buddha had a phrase he used a lot, ehipasiko, please check this out. Look for yourself. See if, in fact, this is true for you. So this is what we're being invited to do. And it really comes down again to these two practices. The first is stabilizing the mind, more tranquility, more evenness, more balance of mind. So generally we use training wills, right? So we're using awareness with something relatively easy to be aware of, like feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out, or whole body awareness is... And in fact, I generally combine the two as the Buddha suggests in his instructions on mindfulness of breathing. So as you're breathing in, be aware of the whole body. As you feel the breath going out, be aware of the whole body. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Breathing out, aware, sensitive to the whole body. Feel the calmness of that whole body awareness as you breathe in, as you breathe out. That's a nice, there are many other ways to practice, but that's a nice anchor to help develop samadhi, the stability of awareness. So instead of working with a whole realm of our experience, we're working with this little more narrow realm of just feeling the whole body as we breathe in, feeling the whole body as we breathe out. And we're developing that stability of awareness, that balance, that non-reactivity, that continuity of awareness with that sliver of our reality as a human being. But even then, you know, even when we're aware of the breath or the whole body, distraction will arise, emotion will arise, sound will arise, right? These other experiences are going to be entering in. So we'll still have to work with the wider world of experience. But, you know, we keep it simple. We find a quiet place to practice. We choose a time of day that's conducive, you know, in our schedule, and our lifestyle that makes it easier to practice. We sit in a way that makes it easier to practice. 
Use a chair if you need a chair. Use a a cushion, sit on the floor if that works better for you. We set a length of time that works for us. So that we're, as best we can, and even though we're not in control of all the circumstances, we create favorable circumstances to create the stability of awareness. That's our first responsibility. And then our second responsibility when we get enough stability of awareness is to let go and just let everything happen on its own. So like for those of you who've been practicing for a while, this could be the second half of your set. The first half, you're really stabilizing awareness, the mind more dependent on your anchor, returning to the anchor, sustaining awareness with the anchor, only looking at other experience when they come in uninvited distraction. So then you don't have a choice. So then you open to that. Oh yeah, thinking is like this. Hearing this traffic is like this. And then, but at the, the second half, for those who sort of been practicing for a while, is let go of that devotion to the meditation anchor. You still will be aware of the breath, the whole body, but you're not strategically returning to the breath and the body. You're just noticing whatever the mind notices. So we call this open attention. Objects of experience are coming and going. Oh, now this is being known. And now it will feel initially messier, right? Because you're not controlling your experience. You're really letting the mind know what it knows. Let what comes, whatever's predominant, the, the knowing in the mind will know that. Oh, this is being known. And you practice, you know, you're sort of trusting this possibility, this reality of non-grasping, that the mind can know it without needing to do anything with it. Oh, this is arising and being known, and then the experience of sound passes away, and then another predominant experience will arise and be known and pass away. So, you know, it makes sense. If we want to be free, we need to practice being free. If we want to be intimate, we need to practice this kind of intimacy. If we want to be kind, we practice. But we can practice, we need to practice in, this sen- in a sense in this microscopic way, moment by moment. Being kind is like letting the experience that's arising be what it is. That's really the intimate or the experience of kindness. It's not needing the experience to be different than it is. Not judging it. Not being afraid of it. We practice all the good qualities that way. Patience, forgiveness, kindness, clarity, seeing deeply the underlying, impersonal nature, the conditional nature. And the more the mind studies it in this way, this is the part we call wisdom practice, right? The first part, more about tranquility and stabilizing awareness. The second half, more about seeing things as they are. This is what leads to liberating insights. You know, the mind realizing that it can let go, realizing that it can live, be a human being, a loving human being, an engaged human being without attachment. Even as a parent, even as a concerned citizen that wants the world to be a better place, to see that it doesn't need attachment. Compassion is a powerful force for change in the world. We don't need anger to make the world a better place. We don't need fear. We don't need greed. 
in order to take care of our life and to clean the bathroom or apply for a job. Compassion and love and joy, appreciation. These are useful, powerful, motivating forces for all the things that need to get done in life. We just think we need to be angry or afraid to go to work. It's like, if I don't go to work, I'm going to get fired and then I'm going to starve. But you'll see that there are other motivations that can get us to do what needs to be done in life. I mean, I'm sure we've all had our struggles with procrastination and thinking that, you know, I need the fear of death in order to do what needs to be done in life. You know, the kitchen sink, the toilet, the whatever has to get so bad that I'm, you know, I'll be humiliated if a friend stops by to get me to do what needs to be done. Often we think we need these things to motivate us. But it's really through lack of imagination and lack of study of our own mind. Because there are motivating forces that are much more effective and wholesome and blissful that allow us to do everything that needs to get done, even the really difficult stuff. So you can really then in daily life begin to explore that. You know, when you, from what gets revealed is how like aversion doesn't work in our formal practice. So then in the world, when you're out in your day and you're using fear or aversion to sort of motivate you, then just like you'll see how you're kind of, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I trust that. Is there another motivation that I can live out of at this time in my life with these circumstances? For example, can I respond to this moment with compassion? What would that look like instead of fear or hate? So I want to leave it here so we have some time to hear from other people in the room. I think Lynn has the microphone. Remember to point it right at your mouth. Any questions that you have about what I've said, we'll come back to Saida's teachings over the next few weeks at least. Comments from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group? Anybody like to begin? Glenda, over here. Um, hi. Um, I... Well, I really like this talk tonight. Um, I've been uh, seeing someone new, and it's been really interesting with the meditation, like seeing the like attachment, but I would say more like grasping happen in the beginning where it's like, oh, look, this relationship makes me feel lovable, so I want it. And then like issues arising and arguments... And then, like, oh, this makes me feel unlovable, so I don't want it. Um, but it feels like, I mean, it's been really interesting watching it because it just feels like I, like, see the neurosis in it, you know? Um, and that's been amazing because I don't think I've really seen that before. But I feel like I don't understand, like, there must be more. <laughs> you know, like, there must be, like... Like, the things that I thought were love, I feel like, maybe aren't love, and that there's, like, something else. And I guess that's just sort of a sharing and then a question, which is, like, there's some insight there, but mostly it leaves leaves me with more questions. Yeah. No, but that sounds just right, Glenda. Because we don't get answers in the practice. What it does is certain patterns get revealed for what they are, just as you described to us a few moments ago. But it, it sort of 
it strips away a lot without replacing with new meaning. But lo and behold, we seem to operate better without a lot of fixed meaning. And this is especially like uh, intimate relationships and it's an especially interesting place for this because we think when we're in relationship with another person that we need to have a story about what's going on in the relationship. Doesn't that seem true? (laughs) But do we? It's like so interesting to be in relationship or have a job or have some aspiration, whatever, but to really embrace this ambiguous, uncertain truth, which I don't really know what's going on. Right? I mean, I know what's going on moment by moment when we're interacting or even when we're not together. And my mind is thinking, I know it's like this now, like these thoughts are being known or this emotion is being felt. That is what I know. And I can know more, I can construct something in my mind, but I know too much to do that because I realize that obsessive thinking isn't helpful. So I'm learning to abandon that without replacing it. And we're learning to live in this open space, this unformed, undefined space, more and more. It was interesting, our cat came home this afternoon. It, it's an outdoor, we let it outside during the day, and it, it was doing this weird panting thing, you know, with, <laughs> it just wouldn't stop. So we brought it to the emergency vet. We were there for like three hours in the afternoon. And they couldn't figure, I mean, they did x-rays and all this stuff and couldn't figure out anything. But I just noticed, I've been on retreat for three weeks, so I'm I'm sort of, my practice has some more momentum than usual. But I just noticed, I mean, it was like traumatic to get the cat to the the vet because it didn't want to get in its little cage and cats don't like cars. And uh, for those of you who aren't cat people. (laughs) And... uh, so, you know, just the, the trauma of the cat sort of doing its cry in the car and all this sort of stuff. But I just noticed that, you know, and all the ambiguity with the vet not being able to tell us anything and, you know, and we're leaving tomorrow to go see Wynn's mother and my wife's mother in New Jersey. So we've got somebody house-sitting the cat. So there's all these sort of, you know, circumstances. But I just noticed my mind being really okay with not knowing what the heck's going on. What's going on with this cat? And, you know, if you Google, like, a panting cat, an open-mouth breathing cat, it's like all bad news. I mean, there's <laughs> cats don't do that unless something's really bad. It's not like a dog, you know, that sort of does that more naturally, but cats don't do that. And, uh, but I just notice it's like we don't know what's going on, and that's okay. It's okay. I mean, I... We love the cat, but we're, we've, you know, both Wynnum and I have practiced for many decades, you know, we learn to be okay with not knowing. And that's just so interesting, in an, especially a newer relationship, to understand this. And another place where this came up was when uh, we decided to get married. And, uh, you know, I was really in, not in not in an entirely wise way, but I was really into things being informed more as a fixed view than as a direct experience of freedom back then in the early 90s. We got married in 93, spent a year thinking about it and talking about it. And uh, it was really interesting to, to come up with our vows. Like, how do you do vows and be honest? You know, and I, 
about like really committing, knowing that we don't know how this thing is going to play out. And we really tried to write vows that because we worked on it over a number of months, what we could both say to each other that was real to us and real to our from our practice experience too, that things that more and more we trusted this place where we're not projecting meaning, not needing to project meaning on life, but living from in a more immediate and direct way. And uh, so those are just some examples of how we can practice with it. And the way you described it, Glenda, sounds exactly right, like getting comfortable with seeing with what you're seeing and getting comfortable with that feeling of there should be something next to do to replace what is getting stripped away naturally because you're practicing well. Right, a lot is going to get stripped away, and the heart, the mind, is going to feel vulnerable, not having meaning to fill in the meaning that's been stripped away. But you'll find you can even ask yourself as a practice move: you can ask yourself, is is it okay to not know? Is it okay for things to be this unformed, this uncertain? Because the answer that might come back is, well, it's a little disconcerting, but I can't say that it's unsafe. I can't say that it's unskillful or dangerous. And actually, the more I kind of feel into it, there's something really light and energizing, enlivening about this comfort, this um, relaxing with things not being known or not being certain. Because everything's uncertain. And the only time things don't seem uncertain is when we're telling ourselves a lie, basically, <laughs> repeating a lie in our mind. You know that there are other, you know that. Oh no, this is this is a solid thing. We got going or something like that. Thanks for sharing with us, Glenda. We have time for at least one more, maybe two more folks. What else is up? Yeah, Dan, please. Thanks. I too enjoyed your talk a lot. Um, I, I'm seeing the samadhi experience. In fact, actually, I had that for the last seven minutes of the sit. I'm seeing it more as a as a threshold or a doorway, and uh, I mean it was real pleasant. Um, but the thing I noticed about it, as I just was with it, is my relationship with everything just seemed to fall into it was very accepting but also very curious and so when i hear you talk about nirvana i'm uh beginning to understand or think that the nirvana is uh well it's 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 i'm i'm open to probe or open to be curious uh, in other words uh, the nirvana uh is more of a process of the accumulated experience of just being totally open. Is that, hopefully it makes sense. Does yeah, that, except I wouldn't use the word nibbana. I would say use the word insight. Yep. So liter- liberating insight is just a matter of accumulating data. You know, the reason why I was inclined to use the nibbana I related to when you brought it up is that as I'm engrossed and just really into it and curious, there's this inner relationship going on, and it's, it's part loving and it's just like there's no need to judge. And um, 
it has a quality about it unto itself that it just seems like I'm experiencing a lot of freedom. I suppose is really what it I'm comes sure to. you are. Yeah, and and but it, it has the quality about it that I'm engaging deeper and becoming knowledge. I can't even really describe it's beyond words, but just knowledgeable about things where I were inclined to just try to think it out or try to attach things to so right and that's that whole world of practice where we're understanding the causes for stress and the causes for release and we're getting a sense of the path it's interesting that the path of practice is mostly about understanding the path like what are the causes for happiness and it and it's just there's a lot of freedom a lot of uh, experience of letting go that happens along the way but we we want to keep open to that we haven't seen the whole thing. Because just on a very pragmatic level, Dan, that humility keeps us much more curious than when we start believing that we know what's going on in the path. It's a little bit like what we were talking about, Glenda and I were talking about, um, to have that same kind of uncertainty about the practice. It just makes our relationship to our practice so much more interesting than thinking that we know what's going on in our practice. Same thing with intimate relationships or any part of our life. Because what we're interested in is not nibbana. We're interested in the causes for freedom, not the freedom. Right? Just stay true to the process, what's liberating in terms of how we live, how we practice, instead of wanting freedom or any sort of wholesome quality. We're interested in the causes, the process. We're investing in that. That's really, as the same teacher, Saito Utejaniya, that's how he defines wisdom. Wisdom is that in our mind that's interested in the causes for happiness, the causes for freedom. Right? That's how you know there's wisdom operating. You see that the mind is interested not in getting free, but like, what is the, like just that natural pragmatic curiosity? What causes the mind to get tight? What causes the mind to release? Because that's pragmatic. That's functional. That will lead to results. So that's why we call it wisdom. It's not idealistic. It's really practical in that way. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. We'll just take a couple seconds. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Let go of the words. Relax. Notice how natural awareness can be. The mind already sensitive, already awake. And feeling some devotion, some real love for this practice that women and men, folks have undertaken for so many centuries now. Like us, they had complicated lives, difficult circumstances, yet they did their practice. They, some of them at least, gained real results, were able to share their insights. We are the lucky recipients of this lineage of wisdom and compassion. And now it's our turn in our busy, complicated lives to do the best we can. 
understand the causes for happiness, to release, to be released from the causes for suffering, and to be a beacon of peace and wisdom in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.